This is E Boogie, the artist formerly known as Eric. You're now listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What is up, guys? We are back with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Anushan, and with me, I've got two guys you know very well, our co-host, Aswi. Howdy how. And we got our sad Knicks fan, AC. Knicks forever. (laughs) (laughs) So the first round finished, and there were some major standouts. So I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts and opinions on who you guys thought played really well, you know, what, what we saw, all those things. So take it away. Well, for starters, it really felt like a changing of the old guard. Think about it. Book beats the Lakers. Trey dominates the Knicks and even steals a game from my Sixers. And then you have Mitchell dominating the Grizzlies and faces the Clippers tonight. Between the three guys, they're averaging about 29 points per game in their first playoffs for Booker and Trey and in his fourth for Mitchell. So I'm really loving what I'm seeing because they're not just playing a regular season game. They're going into places where... The fans are rabid. They are chanting terrible things like Trey is balding. I mean, the Knicks fans did it and the Sixers fans did it tonight. You know, they're coming in and they're just bawling out. And the best part of it is they don't give three shit. They don't care if you got a big man on you. They don't care if people are screaming at them. They're just coming to work and then they're just bawling out. And I love it. Some interesting things. A guy like Booker, he's shooting 50% from the field and 41% from beyond the arc. You look at Trey, he's shooting 44.8% from the field. And actually, it's higher than his career average from three with 34.6%. Then you look at Mitchell, who's shooting 45% from the field and 40% from beyond the arc. So these are big numbers, guys. I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing because... It means that this next generation, it's it's their time to shine. Well, also, you actually didn't even mention probably the biggest standout of that next generation so far, and that's Luka Doncic. In a series that he ultimately lost, he absolutely dominated and played like a veteran of, let me say, 10 playoff runs, which is the composure he played with. And one thing that's common with all the guys you mentioned, plus Luka, is they're also all really good passers. And I, I know you're seeing this firsthand also when you're watching Trey Young. This guy is averaging nearly 10 assists per game. And he deals with traps with such incredible composure, making the right read to the short roll man or even just across the court to the open guy. And same thing with uh, Luka Doncic, who we know is a master at passing. But even you know Devin Booker or Donovan Mitchell, guys you don't think of as passers are each making those plays with Devin Booker averaging a kind of surprising 5.4 assists per game and Donovan Mitchell adding 4.4 himself. So these guys are not just scoring against playoff defenses, which as we all know are much more geared to exploit any weakness in your game. They're also making plays for others. And I I agree with you. I do think that this is maybe the last gas of that old generation as this new guard is coming up against them. You know, fun fact, at home, Luca's a fan favorite because my parents, after watching what he did against the Clippers, are sold on him as being their next guy that they follow. Like, they love LeBron, and I feel like Luca is slowly building up for them. You know, 
LeBron said it really well when asked a question about the future of the league, and he said it beautifully. He said, the league will always be in good hands with guys like that. And he was referencing Devin Booker, but in the grander scheme of things, he's referencing the young players of the NBA. And as you said, Trey Young, Luka Doncic, Donovan Mitchell, all these guys, they all play in a way that AC said, which is playmaking. They're kind of guys who can all make a play for themselves or for other people. And that's in my head at least that's the the direction that the league needs to go into guys who are capable of scoring themselves but also guys who make other people around them better and each of them which is really cool is that they all have kind of a distinct way of playing in the sense that they can hurt you from different spots or some guys like Luca who are really good at getting into the rim or a guy like Trey Young who when he gets into the lane he becomes a a giant problem for teams so I, I think it's fantastic honestly the NBA is in great hands I love your point, Anushan, about that they kind of do it in different styles. Like, Trey is this Steph-esque guy who can pull up from a million feet away, although he's not nearly as efficient as Steph, but he also is a really good passer, a lot like Steph is. Devin Booker is a little bit like a 2.0 Ray Allen, not quite the shooter, but the fact that, kind of like a young Ray Allen, he could kind of slash, he can score in the mid-range and hit threes. It's a little bit what Booker reminds me of. Donovan Mitchell, a little bit like an evolutionary Dwayne Wade. Not quite as big or, or good at slashing, but similar, but also with the ability to hit threes. And Luka is obviously the evolutionary LeBron, as we mentioned before in the podcast. Sort of a guy who doesn't have quite the athleticism, but a lot of the similar strengths and ironically even weaknesses as we talk about his free throw shooting. So they're each emulating a well-known player and kind of doing it in their own way, in their old style. And the other thing is we haven't even mentioned the other young players who are not necessarily the stars of their team or the first options, but are really emerging in these playoffs, guys like DeAndre Ayton, guys like John Collins. I mean, these young guys across the league have are proving themselves, even in the big man ranks, which usually tend to be positions where experience is very necessary because there's so many mistakes that can be made, but they're all comporting themselves very professionally and like veteran players. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we can look back through NBA history and sort of pick a role like, hey, this guy reminds me of this guy. And they play in that similar way. And, and that's awesome to see because to me, you you need to have a great assortment of different types of talent in the NBA. Like you mentioned a guy like John Collins, who to me, it's like a Sean Kemp kind of role, right? He's a, a athletic forward who can like get up there to catch lobs. And he has Trey Young, who is not the same player at all as Gary Payton, but in that same sense, Gary Payton was the playmaker for that team. So it, it's fun to see like that kind of connection between that one and four spot. It's what I love to see from the Hawks. So Asui, we mentioned Trey Young. I think it's time then we talk about your Sixers, who in their series against the Atlanta Hawks, they just evened it up today after a really interesting game one in which the Hawks were kind of in control until the last four or five minutes in which they made blunder after blunder and the Sixers took advantage and nearly stole the game away. Tonight was a different story. The Sixers kind of put their foot on their necks and won in convincing fashion behind, yet again, an incredible performance by Joel Embiid. I'm just curious what your take on the series is so far. Well, let me start by saying I cannot say enough good things about Trey Young. He is something else. I love what he brings to the league and to the series as almost like a villain, right? The way he was jawing at people in in the Knicks series and now the way he's jawing at people in the Sixers series. This is what we love to see, right? But then I also love how like his confidence is infectious and you see that bleeding into his team. And despite his youth and, you know, relatively small stature, he's a great leader for that team. That being said, I was not thrilled... (laughs) 
by how well he played in the first game. I mean, he was cooking Danny Green. Oh man. Yeah, it was just it was just bad. But after I saw the first game and I saw how the Sixers rallied in that second half, it was really encouraging to me as a fan to watch because it showed me that the Sixers do have all of the defensive pieces necessary to beat this Hawks team. And that's what we saw tonight where Trey Young was held to just 21 points on 37.5% shooting and 14.3 from beyond the arc. So what do you think that the Sixers did differently tonight versus game one? Well, for starters, they made him shoot more because though Trey Young is known for his crazy range, he isn't a great three-point shooter. He's he's good, but his career average is about 34 or 33 from beyond the arc. So you want him to take that shot versus him just going into the paint and either drawing a foul, which he's very good at. And one thing I don't like about his game is how much he flops. And the other thing is he's absolutely deadly from his floater range. So in this game, you saw that the Sixers actually kind of collapsed on that and basically prevented him from going there. Because even if Embiid would drop on a pick and roll, he would, and also the help defender often green on that side, would basically step up so that if anything, Trey has two options. He has to take a three or take a contested mid-range shot. And that was an extremely effective defensive strategy that the Sixers employed. Another thing I noticed was that toward the end of the game in the fourth quarter, Glenn pulled Ben out with about three or four minutes left, which basically eliminated the threat of them hacking Ben. So once the two-minute mark was reached, he put him back in the lineup, and we didn't have to suffer through watching Ben miss free throw after free throw. And, and for those who might not know, the hack-a-shack rule was implemented to prevent hacking down the end of game. So Back in the day when Greg Popovich sort of invented the strategy, you could hack a bad free throw shooter up till the end of the game. That led to teams having to take out really good players. So the compromise position was you could hack until the last two minutes of the quarter. So that's kind of what Oswee's referring to when he said that at two minute mark, he brought Benson's back in because at that point, there's an additional penalty if you try to hack someone intentionally. But the biggest thing that game two in particular showed me was how weak our bench is. Because at the half, the Hawks got 32 points from their bench, whereas the Sixers got zero. So what does that tell you? It tells me that our starters are legit. The only reason the Hawks were even in this game was because our bench was that bad. It wasn't until late in the third quarter that someone on the bench finally scored. It was Shake Milton, who played one minute in game one and basically was out of the rotation in the first playoff series. Even in game one, he was pretty much replaced by Tyrese Maxey. Yeah, I mean, Maxey gave us some quality minutes in the first series, and Shake has been basically ice cold. So it was nice to see him really getting it going. But what was bad was once he got a couple of shots going, his confidence was up, and then he started taking some bad shots. But thankfully, we were up enough that it kind of didn't matter. You know, so you said it really well. And again, like I, I agree with a lot of the points you made about how the adjustments were very, very crucial and important to coming away with this pretty much dominant game two win. I, I think in game one, there was a lot of issues with letting Trey just get into the lane and he was able to just do his damage from there because once he would come into the lane, you'd have Embiid or someone try to slide over and take away that floater. But the issue with that is he starts leaving his guy open, which is Capella. Or even if like someone from the wings start to come and dive in to help, 
then you just leave the corners open. And, and the Hawks, as a unit, are a very good three-point shooting team. So I think once guys start to play with a bit more of a stay-at-home mentality, or at least if they trap, they get back and guard the open people out of that trap, or at least they rotate to be able to get those covers off, I think that's really good because we know how good the Sixers are as a defensive team. And I always envision them as a defense-first team, and they're able to make their runs off of their defense. So I, I think that this is going to be a series where as long as you guys can contain Trey Young, you effectively contain the rest of the team because, again, he is the, the primary offensive initiator for them. So I thought you guys did a great job today. He was limited to 6 of 16 shooting. Again, like you said, 14 points. Uh, even the other starters for the Hawks played pretty poorly. John Collins, 4 of 11. Bogdanovich, 6 of 16. So the starters for you guys played excellent. Again, like you said, the benching just kind of shore up a little bit, but through a bit more defensive schemes that Doc Rivers can employ, I'm sure you guys will be just fine. I think in general, there's a tendency to trap and double star player too easily in today's NBA. I feel like the Sixers did the right thing tonight because, listen, Trey Young, I'm going to try to make that guy score 40 efficiently, not let him get to 25, 30, and then also have 15 assists with these dead-eye shooters on their team, like Horner, like Bogdanovich, John Collins can hit threes. They just Gallo. have shooters everywhere. Yeah, Gallo. There's just so many guys who can get red hot, and you give them open shots, they can hit them. This is different than, say, when you face someone like Luca, where he can just take you to the rim and score consistently. If you have a small guy switched on to him, or he can... You know, basically score in a variety of ways. I think Trey Young can score, but as else we alluded to, he's not he's not like a step level shooter where you have to sell out to stop that three pointer. Nor is he so deadly as a finisher that you, you have to worry about him getting to the rim and dunking on you, like say someone like a prime D Wade or something like that. So I, I actually like the idea of trusting the Sixers array of really good defenders from Danny Green to Ben Simmons to Matisse Thybul. They just have an army of these guys and saying, hey, we'll play it a little bit more conventionally. We'll actually use drops here, dare him to beat us from three, and yet still, you know, prevent those floaters, as we were saying before. So I think credit to Glenn Rivers, as we like to call him, but Doc, as the rest of us like to call him, for, uh, you know, making some legitimate playoff adjustments. But none of this would be possible without Joel Embiid. Now, Jokic may be the league MVP, but Joel Embiid is our MVP'd. <laughs> How long do you think of that one, Oswee? <laughs> oh, no. In, in in Sixer circles, we refer to him as our MVP'd. <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. Look, listen. It, it sounds like a, a weird urinary reference. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'll let it slide, though. <laughs> well, listen. As you all know, I've been very tough on Joel Embiid. Certainly at the beginning of the season. And it's an understatement of the century there, I'll say. Yes. We might have had like three pods where you railed on this guy over and over again. Before the season started, to be fair, I mean, you gave him more credit as the season progressed, but you were harsh on him, no question. But if nothing else, I've always been consistent that he is a big game player. He is a playoff player. And the only reason he doesn't have that reputation more is because in the past, he never took care of himself. So he's never available. He was always sick or injured or out of shape or something like that. But this year, he's playing his ass off on both sides of the court. He's diving for things. He's going out for blocks, attacking the hoop. I mean, he's doing moves that I've never seen a big man ever do. He's so fluid when he's going to the hoop. So honestly, what more can you ask from your star? 
I've been holding out for a while now to buy Joel Embiid's signature shoes. But guess what? My pair of Embiid ones came in on Sunday. <laughs> because I- I'm that enthused because he's finally realizing everything we've always thought he could be. And if anything, this playoff run makes me lament the fact that we don't have a true star next to him. I- I'm hopeful that Mori will bring him some help. I mean, this guy is on another level. He's cemented his place as a top 10 player, in my opinion, when he's healthy, because what can you do against him? Clint Capella had like minus 25 today just because Embiid was continually shitting on him over and over again throughout the entire game. And Clint Capella is no scrub, but that's the impact that Joel Embiid has on a given game. So I say it with confidence. Trust the process because I trust him now. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to really go on and rag too much on this because, I mean, also we encapsulated so well. But when you have a guy like Embiid, when he's on, he is one of the best and most unstoppable players in the league. And when you surround him with such a wide array of of great shooters like a Tobias Harris, a Danny Green, a George Hill even, Seth Curry. I mean, what, what can you do against that Sixers offense, right? They are a team that becomes this kind of mediocre half-court offense when they're not all clicking into one of the most unstoppable half-court offenses because you can't double him, you can't leave any of the shooters, and you can't even have one-on-one coverage because who's going to stop Embiid when he gets down low? I have yet to see a center in the NBA outside of, in the past, I would say Marc Gasol and Al Horford who have actually given this guy any sort of trouble. So, I mean... If Embiid stays healthy, and let's hope that that's the case, I think that the Sixers will just find their way cruise not cruising through the series, but they will probably win a lot of the games pretty comfortably like today. And they'll be a real force in the playoffs this year, for sure. Aswi, you mentioned Embiid being in better shape. Do you know what epitomized that more than anything? In game one, this guy's coming off a meniscus tear, which isn't something to just be scoffed at, right? This is a, a big guy with a lot of weight and he gets to run up and down the court and not only did he perform admirably and played hard even down the stretch in a game they're probably going to lose because they were down by a lot but at the end of the game there was a play in which he dove to stop a fast break and it ended up being a clear path foul that was amazing but, oh my god the effort in that situation to go all out and lay out almost like a football tackle it just showed me that one, his will to win, but also that he has the endurance now, even with his injury, to persevere and make yep. that play. Yep. Can you ask for anything more from your star? That's what I want to see. That's what I love. But here's where I'm going to be sort of the Debbie Downer when it comes to Embiid. I don't agree with Anushan that there is nothing to do to stop him. I still would like, if I was the Hawks, I would test his ability to pass. Because you mentioned they have all these shooters. Well, there are a lot of them are, you know, Seth Curry is legitimately amazing. Outside of him, everyone else is a little bit on the streaky side. And there's still a lot of minutes he shares with non-shooters on the floor or guys that I wouldn't consider to be reliable shooters. And also, I agree with Anu that you can't leave him one-on-one. But I don't agree with you, Anu, that you can't double him. Because I, I don't think that he's proven that he can consistently make those passes out of difficult doubles through difficult angles. Let's see him do that. If I'm going to lose the Sixers, it's going to be because I'm getting beaten by the other guys. I'm not going to let this guy just waltz his way to 40 points a night because he's going to keep doing that. That's how dominant he is as a one-on-one player. Well, he has been doubled and he's just scoring on them. 
as far as his passing is concerned, you're right. That's been a problem for him for a long time. But so far in this playoffs, it's been encouraging because he's certainly improved on that point. Osby, just to clarify, he has dealt with doubles well in this playoffs so far, even in the last series. I still think it's not being done nearly enough is my point. And, at, and not at the right times. Now, there's a couple of things that have made a more difficult double. One is that he's so, so much better of a face-up player now. So instead of waiting in the post for someone to throw the ball to him, in which you can kind of send this double where someone's behind him and someone's in front of him, fronting him, so that pass becomes really difficult. Since the rules changed in 2004, you could pre-double someone in the post. It's one of the reasons that the post game has really declined in the NBA since that point. But Joel Embiid can just dribble into the post. So he takes a lot of that kind of double away. But I still think there's opportunities where earlier in the play, he can be doubled, not when he's right near in his scoring range. And one of the things, as you said, Oswald, that he's doing really well, sometimes he's just rising and scoring or making his move away from the double, kind of MJ style, or the doubles come from the left, he's kind of moving to the right and getting to his shot anyway. So he's doing really well so far. I would still challenge that more if I was Atlanta. For sure. And perhaps the biggest question for me moving forward in the series is how will Glenn manage minutes? And in game one, I almost had a heart attack because after being down 20 plus at the half, Glenn opened up the third quarter with an all bench lineup, which, as you might expect, allowed the Hawks to go on a run. So he didn't make that mistake today. He played Tobias with a bunch of bench people. But moving forward, I think he needs to be very careful about how he staggers minutes of Embiid and Tobias because there should be no reason for there to ever be a lineup without Embiid or Harris out there unless you're going all in with Ben at the five and you're just going to let him do his thing. Elsie, what do you think about how Toby and Ben have played respectively? These are the guys who are presumably your second and third stars to take some pressure off Embiid. How have they done in this series so far? Well, throughout this season, I've been really encouraged by what I've been seeing from Tobias Harris. And you saw how he played in that Wizard series. I think he can be a legitimate second option, but the problem is he needs to be a little bit more aggressive. Now, yes, he has been more aggressive this season compared to previous years, right? Because his problem has always been his decision making. I would like him when he's on these lineups where it's basically just him and the bench. He needs to be the guy with the ball in his hands. And if he's not, he needs to demand for the ball. Because, you know, I saw it in game two. It seemed like he was almost passive when it was that bench lineup. Whether it's Glenn who needs to tell him that or he himself needs to just take the ball and just attack. Because he had 16 points in the first quarter and that was a large reason for why we were up at at the beginning of this game so much. As far as Ben's concerned, the fact that teams are able to hack him puts the Sixers in a very tough position because either our offense is completely shut down because they'll just hack Ben forever, or we take off one of the, if not the best defender in the league for an extended period of time toward the end of a game just because we can't risk having one or zero points in a possession. However, in games where Ben is actively attacking the rim and just getting to his spots and creating off of his drives, our offense seems to be on fire. So he just needs to be more aggressive and not worry about going to the line. And as we've been saying for, I guess, weeks now, Glenn needs to play more bench lineups with Ben at the five. Let Ben run the offense from that position. Stop playing him with Matisse and Dwight. Let him stay at the five, put some shooters around him, let him play his game. 
because that is essentially bench points that we seriously need. I, I totally agree with you on the way that Ben is supposed the bench units. I actually would really limit the amount of minutes that Matisse and Ben share, period. Much less the two of them and Dwight Howard. It doesn't make any sense at all to me. I get it. They're amazing defensively, but it puts a huge strain on whoever the last two people are that are out there with them to do a bulk of the scoring because those three guys, you just can't rely on them to do that. I think overall it's difficult to employ hack strategies because teams start collecting fouls to important guys. So either you have to have people out there who are just there to foul, but then they're not contributing anything else or they're important players getting into foul trouble. And with how soft the NBA is now and how many touch fouls are called, you're asked to get into bonus really early. So it says a lot that a team is even trying to employ it at all against the Sixers. It shows how little faith they have. If you look at it mathematically, if you shoot something like 55% from the line, a pretty low bar, you're basically going to score at a rate higher than average in terms of average NBA offensive efficiency in a given possession. So it's a pretty low bar, and it's kind of sad that Ben can't reach it. Yeah, I mean, for a while now, I've and I've said to Austin on multiple occasions that I really thought that Tobias Harris is a really good second option, and potentially he can be a second option on a championship-winning team, which is you know what the Sixers aspire to be. I, I think his combination of being able to score from all different levels, you know, his combination of size as well is very good. I do agree with Uswe that he does need to be a bit more assertive and kind of demand and to be in that role of, hey, when Embiid is off the floor, I'm the next guy up. I need to make plays for my team because he has that capability. He's one of the better scorers in the, in the league. So I, I do think that Tobias kind of can hinge on being kind of like an X factor because if he's on his games and so far in these playoffs, he's been very, very good. As long as he can continue to do that, I think that the Sixers have a good chance at being in a lot of these games where they are relying on their defense primarily to carry them throughout, at least with a guy like Harris who can provide a good amount of scoring. It's something to note. And as far as Ben goes, I agree. I think that there needs to be specific lineups that he plays in and lineups that sort of optimize the player that we know he is and obviously this is like having guys who can shoot the ball and space the floor for him while he can sort of get to the basket and do things of that nature now moving on to the other series in the eastern conference i gotta say so far it's been a little bit depressing seeing how badly the bucks have been outplayed so far in the series james harden has effectively played his possession or two in this series before he sustained that hamstring injury that kept him out of most of game one and all of game two. And yet the Bucks have folded over like a cheap piece of aluminum. And frankly, it's just been embarrassing. It's not that we should be all that surprised about the Nets winning both games at home. It's just the manner that it's been done. It's been complete one-sided basketball with minimal fight from the Bucks, And I've been very disappointed. The biggest takeaway that I had when watching this Nets-Bucks series is... Really, it's, it's a place of concern because the way I look at it, if the Bucks are struggling this much against the Nets, should we meet the Nets in the conference finals? How are we going to fare much better? Because if you look at the Bucks on paper, they are a better team than us, right? They have far better shooters and they have a combination of Holiday, Middleton and Giannis to throw at these guys. And still, they're getting their ass handed to them. So the way I look at it is, if they're struggling like this, are we going to? Uh, Newsflash, I'll sweet. The answer is yes. <laughs> These guys are going to whoop your ass if they get out of this round. I mean, I don't want that to happen. 
As someone who now resides in the greater Philadelphia area, I would like to see the Sixers do well. But man, this Brooklyn team, even without James Harden, they're putting on a straight offensive clinic. Yeah, man. They are 49.5 from the field, 44 from beyond the arc. But they're shooting above league average in every zone on the court, except directly under the hoop. They're only 57.1 from there. It's ridiculous. I'm almost 43 above the break. 50% from one corner, 60 from the other, 51.6 in mid-range, 50 in the paint. There's not a single place on the court that is safe. These guys are just going to score everywhere. And the biggest thing is we've all been holding out hope that the fact that the Nets haven't played together much this year and would create like some type of lack of chemistry. But when I look at this Nets team, it's the opposite of what I saw in last year's Clippers team. These guys, despite not having played together that much, play for each other like a team that has been together. The Nets, their ball movement is incredible. Everyone from top to bottom plays unselfishly. They pass the rock around and off ball. Guys are making great cuts. It's it's honestly, I hate to say it, but it's beautiful basketball. Their ball movement is completely tearing up the Bucks' defense. And... Of course, we mentioned their offense, but I mean, even looking at it from the side of their defense, I think that they've been amazing. I mean, granted, I think the Bucks have just struggled and have been in their own head for sure. But I think that the effort that the Nets players exude is something to definitely marvel at. Because again, you have guys like Joe Harris, Landry Shamit, guys like that who soak up maybe more so Joe Harris and Landry Shamit, but guys who aren't really known for their defense, but they will put in that effort because in my head, at least, if they're not really hitting their shots or doing much on the offensive end, their values start to decrease. But if they're at least putting in the effort and the energy to sort of try to get defensive stops to play hard, then, you know, it allows them to stay on the floor and still be a threat as far as floor spacing is concerned. I also think guys like Bruce Brown have been absolutely incredible. I mean, here, here's a guy who's 6'4", and he's averaging around like five to six rebounds in a game during these series, right? And this is up against a, a, a Bucks team that have incredibly good rebounders and are very good at controlling the defensive glass. So a guy like Bruce Brown, who has played a very important role in this series, those types of role players are huge for the Nets because we know what we're getting from a Kevin Durant. We know what we're getting from a Kyrie Irving. And even with the loss of a James Harden and a Jeff Green, the role players have set, have stepped up. I mean, Blake Griffin is dunking for God's sakes. And he's posterizing Giannis. Like we're seeing things that are just absolutely incredible coming out from the Nets. So, I mean, kudos to them for sure. Anu, to your point about Blake Griffin dunking, Fun fact, in 2019-2020, he dunked five total times in 18 games played on the Pistons. This season, he dunked zero times in 20 games played on the Pistons, but then 25 total times in 33 games played on the Nets. My dude is straight up posterizing people. I mean, (laughs) he's a a good actor for sure. I mean, I've definitely seen some of his performances and some of his comedy routines, but I didn't know he could act that well. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Though I'm actively rooting against the Nets, I'm genuinely happy for Blake to have this career resurgence. Though I will say, it does beg the question, was he mailing it in in Detroit? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say yes or no, but I'm going to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, look, man, sometimes the fit just isn't right and you don't feel motivated at work. But, you know, you go to the right place and all of a sudden you found your legs again. Yeah, I mean, the Pistons got to be looking at this Brooklyn team with a lot of regrets. You know, not only Blake Griffin, but Bruce Brown was just an afterthought. He was on a cheap contract there. And it's the classic one man's trash, another man's treasure. Well, the Nets found a real gem in this guy. As Anu said, he's 6'4", but he plays his ass off. He plays center for them at times. He does all the dirty work. He's the kind of role player, kind of like one of those P.J. Tucker types, although P.J. Tucker's been terrible in this series so far. But those guys who are just invaluable to a team because they do all the things that the star players either don't want to do or at least they don't have to do on a per-possession basis. So between him, Shamit, Blake, Joe Harris, they're getting role-player performances up and down the roster and everyone's contributing. And let's not forget that their star players have been absolutely dominant. Kevin Durant is one of my least favorite players ever, full disclosure, because I always believed in his talent, but I've hated the way that he's gone about his last few seasons. His on-court persona can be annoying. But this guy is flat-out balling. He's making as good of a case as anyone as being the best player in the world right now. AC, AC, AC. I mean... This is this is a team that has two guys who are terrorizing the reigning defensive player of the year. They're taking turns, breaking his ankle, snatching back on him, and absolutely demolishing him. It, it's just like, it, it seems like a hate crime, honestly, against the Greek people. It's <laughs> 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 yeah, it's interesting. I feel like there was a lot of talk about the Bucks needing to use more of a switching scheme, needing to use Giannis on elite players, right? And we saw that last year where they failed to do it against Miami. And this year, lo and behold, the obvious move happened and Giannis was amazing at guarding Jimmy Butler. And their switching scheme was highly effective. Well, in this series, though, he's facing guys who aren't just limited to only being able to drive like Jimmy. He's facing three-level scorers who can absolutely embarrass you. And if you look at Giannis's impact as a defender, it's always been highest, not as a man-to-man defender, but as a team defender. And even a guy with his size, speed, and skill, and length, simply can't bother someone like Kevin Durant, which is just so many moves in his back. But the thing is, they're not even just using man-to-man schemes. What do you guys make of Coach Bud throwing out a zone defense at the start of Game 2? which predictably got obliterated by a Nets team that has so much shooting, and as we said, kind of surprisingly even has a lot of passing. This is what I mean when I say I, I have reservations about Bud's ability to coach a championship team. I seriously feel like if the Bucks had a better coach, this would be a lot closer of a series. And, and it really goes with like a good coach would never play a zone against a team that could shoot like this. Like, like you're not playing like the Knicks or something. You're 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 playing the Nets, you know? I, I think you're gonna use a zone as like a change up, not as your go-to scheme against a team with this much shooting. And by the time he moved away from that scheme, the game was effectively over in the first quarter. The lead was too much. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of bad ideas you can have in basketball, but to open a game playing a zone against a team that has some of the best shooting in the league, I mean, it's like you can't make this stuff up at this point. This is honestly ridiculous. (laughs) You know, we saw this with Dallas in Game 7 against 
the Clippers as well, but they were doing that because they could only play a zone to keep Boban on the court and they needed it for his offense. Here, I can't think of any reason why they have to play a zone. They have guys who should be, in theory, versatile defenders in almost any scheme. One of the problems they're having, though, is coming into this series, we all thought that Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton would be huge keys to their team defensively as well as offensively. I mean, Drew Holiday is one of the best defenders in the NBA, and Middleton is a no slouch. Both guys have been struggling tremendously with their offense, and I think it's translating to them having struggles on the other end as well. Yeah, the Bucs can't even buy a shot. The team averaged 14 three-pointers made per game in the regular season, but in this series, in two games, they have 14 three-points made total. Yeah, I mean, AC, you mentioned Middleton and Drew Holiday, and last game really showcased just how badly they were when they were on the court. I mean, Middleton was a minus 30, and Holiday was a minus 27. I mean, they effectively, by plus-minus numbers, they were the worst players on the Bucks team. And it, it's kind of sad, because like you said, there was so much hype going into this season, especially with the acquisition of Drew Holiday, because like you said, at his position, he's one of the best defenders in the league. And I know they were great in round one against Absolutely, Miami. Absolutely, yeah. They were amazing. I mean, to your point, Anu, Chris Middleton had one steal and no blocks. Drew Holiday, no steals or no blocks. And these guys are great defenders. From an offensive point, Middleton has an offensive rating of 72 and a defensive rating of 122. That's atrocious. That's crazy. His true shooting percentage is 34.2 and his effective field goal percentage is 33.7. He has not made a single corner shot. He's only made a quarter of his stuff from above the break and he's shooting 12.5% from mid-range, which that's his game, right? He he has a good mid-range game, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he is one of the best in the league. Right. You look at Drew, he's 33% from above the break, but he hasn't attempted a single corner three and he's hitting a quarter of his mid-range jumpers. So, I mean, that's concerning. Drew also has the average lowest plus minus of any Buck starter with minus 20. So this has been a very bad series for the number two and three guys for the Bucks. Another factor outside of the stars, I really feel like the injury to Vincenzo is having snowball effects on the rotations and the roster and just the general prospects of this team being able to overcome this deficit. Because right now, they enter every game effectively because they don't really trust Bryn Forbes or Pat Connaughton. They start P.J. Tucker and Lopez and Giannis, which means you have a very slow front court against KD and Kyrie who can cook anybody, basically. Whereas DiVincenzo would be the natural shooting guard and then everyone could move up a position and then you could close with lineups and say Giannis the five now you're playing a lot of lineups where Giannis is almost the three. And, and that's just not an effective way to use them. You know, it makes me wonder whether, I mean, us, we made the prediction in our very early episodes of our, our podcast. But like, maybe the Bucks just, just they, they aren't built for the moment. I mean, granted, they are up against a incredible Nets team, no doubt about it. And this is a Nets team that's injured as well. But I mean, you'd figure you'd get a little bit more fight out of a team that had championship aspirations. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I'm just very disappointed of what I've seen from the Bucks and Coach Bud as a whole. When is Coach Bud going to play Giannis more than 33 minutes per game? They're clearly lacking the bench depth to make up for his absence when he's not on the court. Why is this guy playing so few minutes yet again? I, it, things like this, just it's so difficult to win an NBA. It's so difficult to win against a quality playoff opponent. 
you know, Anu, you mentioned that this is a good Nets team. Yeah, but they're not playing James Harden right now. So they may have been like an unbeatable super team, but they're a very beatable team in my opinion. You can't do simple things wrong, like play a zone against them and give them free points or not play your best player for long stretches. Those are kind of self-inflicted mistakes, which when combined with facing a talented opponent means you're going to lose. I really don't blame Giannis for how the Nets are just annihilating his team. His supporting cast is really letting him down. And I felt so bad for him in the first quarter of game two because he had this unbelievable sequence happen to him. First, he gets put on skates by KD, who subsequently makes the shot right in his eye. Then he gets put on skates by Kyrie, who subsequently makes the shot in his eye. And then he gets completely posterized by Blake Griffin. Man, talk about a tough break for Giannis. Yeah, I mean, it's just, like I said, the hate crap on Greek people. It's just, it's so sad to, <laughs> to watch what's happening to him. I, I just feel like, a part of it is definitely on his shoulders. Not just part of it, probably a big part of it's on his shoulders. But I mean, like AC said, like Bud hasn't done anything to help him. The supporting cast hasn't done anything to help him. Not having DiVincenzo is a huge blow because like AC said, it, it ruins kind of the rotations because they have to play Bryn Forbes and Pat Connaughton to soak in those two to three spots. So it's it's kind of messing everything up for the Bucks, And, you know, there isn't a really bad situation where now they must win the next two games in order to even have a chance in the series. Now, while Giannis is scoring 26 points per game on 61.4% from the field, he's shooting 25% from three and a paltry 20% from the free throw line. I mean, guys, 20% from the free throw line from your star player, the guy you're relying upon, that's flat unacceptable. I mean, that makes someone like Shaq or Andre Drummond or Dwight look like Steph Curry out there. I mean, 20%. <laughs> It's so pathetic. That being said, because his three-point shot is not working, he needs to put his head down and just attack the hoop more. To put this in perspective, he's 25% beyond the break, 20% from the mid-range, but he's 21 of 26 in the paint. So look, man, if your shot's not working for you, just go at the hoop more. And that'll create opportunities for you to kick it out to one of your shooters. Well, one of the reasons, Asu, that people were very high on the Bucks, you know, I was high on them coming into the series, is in the regular season, he bludgeoned them in the paint over and over and over again. They don't have the personnel to stop him at the rim. I mean, I guess they could play someone like DeAndre Jordan, but they don't want to, and he hasn't been that good, right? So they don't really have anyone else there who can even remotely bother Giannis when he's slashing to the hoop. Now, part of that failure to do that more is because they are trying to build some level of a wall and they're not afraid right now of the Bucks shooters. My hope is that when the series swings back to Milwaukee, role players tend to shoot better at home. Hopefully the guys catch fire a little bit and they can get some space for Giannis to really attack and put pressure on them. You know, for a guy who spends an eternity at the free throw line, you'd figure that he'd be able to knock down a couple given how long this is the routine is. But... Yo, Adushad, Adushad, did you know that the Nets on the Jumbotron would actually have a clock <laughs> counting the seconds of him at the free throw line? But of yeah. course, the NBA had to kill the fun and they told them that they can't do that. But I mean, I love that. That's yeah, part of the showmanship. You know, like... <laughs> That's mean... gamesmanship, man. That's yeah. gamesmanship. It's great. It's... Come on, NBA. Oh, That's yeah, some fun. Terrible. Yeah, I Listen, how about you get your officials to actually enforce a rule that you put on the books that is 10 <laughs> seconds? As if 10 exactly. seconds, by the way, is it long enough to shoot a goddamn free yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, 
in, <laughs> instead of punishing a team for having some fun with it and putting a counter there. Oh my god, it's so it's so insane. It's like Jan's just trying to calculate all the angles, do all the math in his head, just to brick off the side of the backboard. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> you know, a lot of guys who analyze free throw shooting tell you that if you look at the vast majority of good free throw shooters, their routine is short, it's quick, and it doesn't have very many steps, so you have as much consistency as possible. Giannis sitting there staring at the hoop, it's not helping him as a free throw shooter. He doesn't just stare, he like stares, breathes, looks at the sky, prays a little bit, <laughs> dribbles, then he shoots the ball. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just logically speaking, if you have a quicker routine, you're at the line for a shorter period of time. So that's that much less pressure that's on you. And less things that are going wrong in your mechanic, right? Because yeah. even just the mechanics of shooting the ball, that, that last portion of a shot takes too long. There's a hitch to it. There's a couple steps in just the way that it releases it. And that's why it's not consistent. Yeah. It lacks a lot of fluidity. I totally agree with you. So guys, if you were in Bud's shoes right now, you're facing a 2-0 deficit, your team got annihilated in two straight games, what, if anything, would you change in game three to try to you know, turn the tide of the series? Anything you know, with the rotations or tactically? Well, I think for starters, I'd avoid playing a zone altogether. <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. maybe there, Arishan, <laughs> but yeah so if i was in bud shoes which are shoes that i do not want to be in whatsoever I, I think one thing i would try to look to do is to stop playing lopez as much maybe like kind of find minutes where i can insert him here or there preferably when claxon's in the game I mean, I, I just don't think Lopez is that effective in this series. He's too slow. He hasn't really been effective guarding any sort of pick and roll action. In fact, he gets into this action where he's guarding Bruce Brown. And then they run a pick and roll with KD as the ball handler. And he's getting absolutely torched in that action. So you need a guy who can sort of come up to be able to hedge in and play different types of defensive schemes. So I, I'd take him out. I'd maybe look to get a guy like Bobby Portis some more minutes. I, I don't think he's been getting enough runtime. I think he has potential to sort of be a decent offensive option for the Bucks, but also just better defensively as far as the schematics are concerned. Uh, that's a good point about Lopez's scheme limitations because he has been an anchor on a very good Bucks defense, but it's only playing one type of way. The only way that Brook Lopez can play is in a drop scheme. And when you have KD, Kyrie Irving, and if he's healthy, James Harden, or even someone like Joe Harris, frankly, in any kind of pick and roll action involving Brook Lopez, they're going to pull up and shoot if he drops. And if he does try to switch, which the Bucs have been trying to incorporate lately, he's going to blow by them. The problem that Bud has is with DiVincenzo already out of the rotation, it's already hard for them to come up with five competent players on the floor, even with Brook Lopez. Doing it without him seems like even a more difficult challenge. So then if you're saying taking Brook Lopez off, are you starting Portis or are you starting small Giannis at the five? Like It starts to get difficult. Yeah. And again, like I'm not saying to completely take Lopez out of the rotation because I, there are instances where he can be effective, especially when he gets the ball into low post situations. And he can be an effective interior defender. I don't take that away from him. But again, like from a schematic point, I think maybe they can start the game with Lopez for a couple of minutes, maybe like a four or five minute run, take him out and serve Bobby Portis. Maybe even like you said, move Giannis to the five and start messing around with lineups from there. Again, their bench depth is not the best and they are struggling with the DiVincenzo injury. So again, there's not really much you can do. And I don't even think there's many defensive schemes you can employ against a team like the Nets because they are just so gifted offensively and they have a wealth of options available to them. So 
as far as the defensive standpoint goes, I think it's very difficult to game plan. And even offensively, I would like to see Giannis being used more as like the role man, as we've talked about a lot over the course of our podcast, him playing a bit more off the ball. And I feel like he's more afraid to attack and get to the basket. I, I just haven't seen him be that Giannis Antetokounmpo that we know he's capable of being. And like you said, the Nets don't have the personnel to really stop him on the inside. Whenever I see a guy not driving as he's capable of, there's often a couple of causes. One is because the defense is sinking in more than he's expecting them to. The other is often the guy is hitting free throws. And we see that in this series, as else we alluded to, he's a guy shooting 20% from the line. That tends to make you not want to drive as much. But he's also just not taking enough attempts. He's only taking five free throws. So he's getting the line about two and a half times per game, right? So it's just not nearly enough. I think the only thing you could try to do against the Nets is switch against them. They just have too much shooting to any other type of scheme I can think of. Maybe if you could really execute a trap really well, if you have the personnel to do that, I don't think they do unless Giannis is at the five. Basically, get the ball out of KD's hand, get the ball out of Kyrie's hands, get it to other people, make them have to make plays. That'll still lead to some open shots, but at least you're being the aggressor and causing turnovers. I haven't really seen the Bucs do that all year long. You know, Some teams like the Lakers, for instance, use that a lot. So I don't think it's really a thing they should pull out now. I think they have tried switching, though. They should hope that Drew Holiday and Middleton play better because ultimately schemes are relevant. These guys aren't covering ground defensively. Drew could absolutely switch on to these guys and give them some trouble. Same with Middleton. And they need to make shots, right? I mean, ultimately, both not just Middleton and uh, Holiday, but the whole team. This is a make-or-miss league at times, and, and they need to make some shots to free up that room. And I think the best chance for them to do that is to put Giannis at the five as much as possible so that, you know, you have a pick and rolls in which the defense really has to sink in, leading to easy three-pointers once either the, the ball handler or the roll man sprays out. So you have uncontested threes. So I have a question for you both. If the Bucks lose this series, is Bud fired? I think there's no question, right? At some point, you know, you did everything else. You've changed the roster. You've made a major move to get rid of Eric Bledsoe and bring in Drew Holiday. That move actually sacrificed quite a bit of depth for this Bucks team, which is coming to bear a bit right now. The only thing that has not really been tried here is Coach Bud's continually getting a pass, despite, frankly, atrocious playoff coaching. And I, I hate saying that because coaching is so much more than ultimately the in-game adjustments that are made or the schemes that are made. So much of coaching happens behind the scenes. It's getting guys ready. It's getting people through the long grind of the postseason. But ultimately, this is a team that employs the two-time reigning MVP before, I guess, Jokic just won the MVP for this season. But previous two years, you have that kind of player who's committed to this franchise. They need to win. They have a roster that on paper should be able to have much better results than they've been having so far. At some point, not to be cheesy, but the buck does stop with Bud. <laughs> that was my best Oscar joke. <laughs> yes! <laughs> the influence has spread. I mean, I, I fully agree with you, ACA. You said everything that I, I thought of. I mean, just take it for what it is. If, if you're not going to play your star player in games that matter, extended minutes, minutes that could swing the flow of a game, you just don't deserve to have that mantle. I just don't think that Bud has done enough from the side of in-game adjustments to even you know outside of the game, like you said, just preparation for the game. So I don't know, Bud, uh, you got to go, man. All right, gents. Then I guess the real question is, who's winning this Bucks nets series? And you know what? Who's winning my Sixers-Hawks series? 
Well, regarding your Sixers, Oswee, I have a good amount of faith in them. And as I've told you, I've had faith in them going into the season. So I'm going to say they win this in six. And as far as the Bucks and the Nets are concerned, I think the Bucks are able to get one game out of it. So I'm going to say Nets in five. Well, I'm going to game five of the Sixers series. I would love for us to win it in five, but I think more likely than not, we'll be winning in six. As for the Bucks Nets series, I want to say Nets in six. I believe in the Bucks. Believe it or not, I believe in the Bucks to at least do something. I believe that they will show us to fear the deer and not, as Ernie Johnson said, be like deer stuck in headlights. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> this should be a hot take in general because us we rags on the Bucks all the time. So <laughs> perhaps it's a uh, fool's hope that's really behind all of it. I mean, he's still picking the Nets to win, so it's hardly a hot take. <laughs> It's just saying 11 and 6. Yeah. <laughs> if I had made a prediction before this series started, I would actually have picked Box and 7. And I do think there is a world in which that could still happen, but it seems so far off and I would be crazy to pick them. And, you know, when the Clippers were down to the Mavs 0-2, I do want to take a little victory lap on this. When they were down 0-2, I, I still said the Clippers would win. When Luka won that game five, I still said the Clippers would win in seven. But the difference there was I just thought the Clippers were the vastly more talented team than the Mavs overall. Here, the Nets are arguably the more talented team and the team that's playing better. And that's not even counting the fact that James Harden could potentially return in this series, though I would increasingly be surprised if it actually happened. So it seems difficult to me to imagine that they won't win. Let's give the Bucks their two middle games, games three and games four, and everyone's going to get excited about this series, and the Nets will close them out in six. As for the other series, Oswe, I would love for you to experience a win in game five, but I agree with both of you that the Hawks are just a little bit challenging to beat in Atlanta where all those role players are going to have that crowd going behind them. I expect them to have some good games there. So I'm going to say Sixers win in six, mostly out of respect for the Atlanta's ability to at least win one of their home games. All right, and I think that's a great place to stop. I mean, the Eastern Conference has been pretty good so far, minus the Nets completely destroying the Bucks, but we will definitely see where this goes. And tune in to our next episode where we'll be covering the Western Conference series, and we'll be bringing back our Jazz fan, Ubby, to go over the nuances of that series as well. So if you guys want to also hear Ubby go completely insane, please be sure to check in to our next episode. As always, thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to like, comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you catch your podcast and we will definitely catch you in the next one all right peace out guys